she could become the first woman on the moon. This week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Stephanie Wilson is one of the 18 astronauts just chosen for what NASA calls the Artemis team. It moves her one step closer to walking on the moon. We'll meet her in a brief conversation. Then we'll turn to another pioneering explorer. Cassini Project scientist Linda Spilker is back to tell us about the most recent science from the mission that spent so many years circling Saturn. Linda also has thoughts to share about our exploration of the outer solar system and the current planetary science decadal survey. Speaking of Saturn, did you catch the Great Conjunction? Though I wasn't all that excited when I first heard it was coming, I have to admit that it was thrilling to see our solar system's two biggest worlds sharing the eyepiece of my telescope. I'm sure Bruce Betts was also watching this once-in-many-lifetimes event, so we'll ask him about it when we get to What's Up. The conjunction also tops the December 18 edition of The Downlink, our weekly newsletter that you'll find at planetary.org. Just below is some lovely coffee-colored dirt. That's not just any dirt. It is material gathered in 2019 by Japan's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft that has safely dropped it off on Earth. The same goes for regolith brought back from our moon by China's Chang'e 5. Over now to Israel, where nonprofit Space IL has announced it will once again try to land on the moon. The Bereshit 2 mission is set for launch in 2024. We've got links to our coverage of Bereshit 1 on this week's episode page at planetary.org radio. All that and more are in the downlink. The latest of my monthly newsletters is also out. You can subscribe to it for free at planetary.org slash radio news. Here is NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstein talking at the December 9th meeting of the United States National Space Council. Welcome to the Artemis Generation. A lot of you in this room, you've heard me talk about the Artemis Generation. I'm the first NASA administrator in history that wasn't alive when we had people living and working on another world. And of course, it is our goal that I'm the last NASA administrator in history that wasn't alive when we have people living and working on another world. Our goal is to go to the moon sustainably, to learn how to live and work on another world so that ultimately we can take all of that knowledge onto Mars. One of Administrator Bridenstine's tasks at that NSC meeting was to introduce the 18 astronauts named to the Artemis team. One of them is Stephanie Wilson. I don't want to call her an overachiever, but like all her colleagues, her resume is impressive. Stephanie spent 42 days in space on three space shuttle missions beginning in 2006. That was after working for NASA at the Johnson Space Center, at the Jet Propulsion Lab, and for Martin Marietta. She has engineering degrees from Harvard and the University of Texas at Austin, and she currently serves as the Astronaut Office Mission Support Crew Branch Chief. I was all in when NASA announced opportunities to talk with members of the Artemis team, and Stephanie was at the top of my list. Ms. Wilson, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us on Planetary Radio, and congratulations on your selection as part of this new Artemis team. Well, thank you for having me, and I thank you for the congratulations. I'm very excited. I bet. I had several reasons for asking to talk with you specifically, but two stand out. 
please forgive the first one. I'm hoping that unlike a lot of your colleagues on the Artemis team, you're old enough that you may actually remember the last time humans walked around up there. Am I am I right? You are correct. And I do have vague, vague memories of Neil Armstrong and uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, landing on the moon. I was uh, about three years old, and I remember hearing it and uh, watching it on a black and white TV uh, with a lot of uh, snow (laughs) Uh, (laughs) in the background. But I, I do have a vague, vague memory of that. Do you remember the end of the program, Apollo 17, any better? I mean, what you were, what, six by that time? Yes, true. You know, not that I can recall. Um, Mm. I remember the first mission uh, because we, of course, my parents uh, were there with me. And so it was a big moment to um, watch it together or at least to try to have me, you know, pay attention to uh, realize what was going on. That's tough with a three-year-old. Uh, here's the second. <laughs> this is the second question. I loved that before you started going up there yourself, you worked at the Jet Propulsion Lab, contributing to uh, the robotic exploration of our solar system. Can you talk about your part in the Galileo mission to Jupiter? Yes, I uh, worked at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory from 1992 to 1996. I was a member of the Attitude and Articulation uh, Control Team. Uh, responsible for the orientation of the spacecraft and in particular pointing uh, Galileo so that the uh, science instruments could uh, take the uh, particular readings and collect the data uh, from Jupiter. So it was a wonderful opportunity to be part of a mission control team, which I think really helped uh, my work uh, at the Johnson Space Center. Uh, Once I became an astronaut, of course, working in mission control and uh, working with the mission control team and being the representative of that team to the uh, on-orbit crews. And then, of course, the robotic missions are the precursor to human missions collecting the data and giving us good uh, insight into uh, potential opportunities for a human mission. So all of that tied together very nicely. Did you develop a sense of being an explorer, being a part of that mission that, that continues today? I did, and I also had an early interest in science and engineering and in aerospace in middle school uh, as a result of a school program talking to a, a local area astronomer and um, really then developing or starting to be aware of some opportunities in science and engineering and exploration. At that time, I was interested in astronomy, and my exploration interest uh, started then. I read that that astronomer that you're referring to, I think it was Jay Pasikoff, who happens to be a, a good friend. Uh, yeah, and he is still a professor at the Williams College and uh, still uh, working wonderfully well and uh, vibrantly uh, in the area of astronomy. So he's still a contributing uh, member to that field, and uh, he has done wonderful work over the years and has been a wonderful friend and mentor. And still chasing those uh, eclipses around the world. Let me switch gears. Uh, I just read uh, that the Artemis III Science Definition Team released its report just a few days ago. I was very impressed by its long, very comprehensive list of recommendations, including the call for uh, the Artemis astronauts, you and your colleagues, to have the same kind of intensive geology and planetary science training that the Apollo astronauts had. Does that option make this experience even more interesting or exciting? It does. We, of course, uh, as part of our astronaut candidacy training, have some training in geology a few weeks or so 
of course, mine was some time ago. And at that time, we took a field trip to uh, Colorado and New Mexico. Uh, and I have since participated in some other analog uh, training in the Arizona area and, uh, and undergone some other uh, geology training. But uh, an in-depth course to prepare us for these uh, missions to the moon would be welcomed and is certainly uh, a great opportunity. Our time is so limited because uh, you're talking to a lot of folks like me today. So I got just one more for you. There, there were also recommendations made by that science definition team for leaving a suite of instruments on the surface, just as the Apollo guys did, like that all-set package, and a call for a rover. Can you see yourself uh, kicking up some dust as you roll across the moon? I can definitely envision myself kicking up some dust <laughs> and participating in whatever way helps the mission as far as doing the field geology and the sample collection and return and uh, deploying experiments and driving a rover. So all of that uh, sounds wonderful to me. It's a great opportunity to uh, represent the astronaut office and to work with my uh, team members uh, there to uh, accomplish the mission objectives and to contribute to the Artemis program. Stephanie, I wish you the greatest of success and luck, and I, I look forward to... Uh... Uh, watching that video of, uh, I, I hope it'll be you, but certainly among your colleagues, uh, seeing that video come back from the moon uh, with humans up there for the first time since uh, you and I were very young. Yes, we uh, look forward to it as well. And it, it'll be a wonderful opportunity, whether I am selected or another of my colleagues, I'll be excited either way. Artemis team astronaut Stephanie Wilson. I'll be back in moments with the news from Saturn delivered by Linda Spilker. This is Planetary Radio. Season's greetings. Bill Nye here. The holidays are racing toward us. We've got the perfect present for the space enthusiast in your life. A gift membership to the Planetary Society will make her or him part of everything we do, like flying our own light sail spacecraft, two of them, advocating for space exploration, keeping our planet from getting hit by an asteroid, and this show. Sure, you'd like to give them a ticket to the moon or Mars, but I promise you this is the next best thing. Memberships start at $50 a year or just $4 a month. We've got discounts for students, educators, and seniors. Visit us at planetary.org gift to learn about the benefits of membership and how easy it is to give someone special the passion, beauty, and joy of space. That's planetary.org gift. Thank you and happy holidays. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. Maybe one of you can help. I've lost track of how many times Linda Spilker has been heard on our show. Not just in sit-down interviews like you're about to hear, but in our coverage of milestone events in the great Cassini-Huygens mission that ended in September of 2017, when the great robotic explorer plunged into Saturn's atmosphere. Or did it end? The science enabled by Cassini is still very much a work in progress. Linda, welcome back to Planetary Radio for the umpteenth time. As I said, uh, you still hold that title of uh, the most uh, frequent guest on our show. Matt, it's a pleasure to be here. I am so glad that we still have lots of new stuff to talk about. This time, not just Cassini, but I think that's where we'll start. There are two recent press releases that I got that I'm, I'm hoping we can talk about. One of them begins with uh, some revelations on that big cloud-shrouded moon Titan having to do with the impact craters there. And we know that from, you know, talking about other bodies, how important craters can be for telling us about 
uh, the past and, and much more about those worlds. I didn't know this would apply to Titan until I saw this announcement made in October. I mean, what's going on here? Can you describe it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Titan is a very interesting world. As you said, it has this very thick, opaque atmosphere. And so it's very hard to see through to the surface. And so that was one of the goals of the Cassini mission. And that thick atmosphere, you can think of it as a protective shield. So any meteoroids that come into the system usually are vaporized or burn up before they hit the surface, just like happens here on the Earth. But some of the larger objects do make it through and they make craters. And those craters, you can think of excavating the material on the top and revealing what's underneath. And so for this particular paper, what the authors did is they studied nine different craters at different locations on Titan. Uh, there were some craters around the, the field of dunes that are there in the equatorial region. There are these uh, particles from the upper atmosphere form and rain down and form these very thick dunes. And then they studied another set of craters at the mid-latitudes. And what they found is that these craters tell you a lot, not only about the surface underneath of Titan, but about the processes that happen in the atmosphere that can change the surface. And so this was some very, very fascinating results uh, in looking at these two kinds of craters. Knowing that Titan, as we've talked about in the past, is such a dynamic place, all that weather going on, does this mean that craters generally are, you know, at least in geologic terms, fairly fresh on Titan because they get worn away? That's exactly right, Matt, that the craters on Titan do tend to be young in geologic terms. And what was so fascinating about the differences is that the, the, the craters in the equatorial region and the, the dunes were made up completely of organic material. These probably these particles that form when methane is broken apart in the upper atmosphere and the methane fragments grow into larger and larger molecules until they're big enough to actually fall to the surface. But when you look at the craters that are in the mid-latitude range, there they're a mix of organic material but they have a lot of water ice and a small amount of methane ice. And so it looks like at the mid-latitudes, this methane rain that we know happens on Titan is cleansing or sort of washing away some of the organic particles so you can still see the ice. So this is telling us about the weather on Titan, as you said, and what we can see now through and looking at these craters to understand the weather on Titan. Here's just a, a random, possibly unwelcome thought. I mean, wouldn't it be great if methane rain, I imagine it's transparent just like rain here, but wouldn't it be great if it was purple rain? A <laughs> tribute to Prince there. Right. Well, well, it really won't show up. And we saw a big methane rainstorm had occurred on Titan. When we looked at a place on the surface, it looked wet, it looked darker, it looked different. And mm. as we flew by Titan, Cassini actually flew by Titan over 120 times in the 13 years it orbited Saturn. And we actually watched as that place on the surface of Titan, as that methane evaporated, and then we could see the surface going essentially back to normal over a period of months. You mentioned that this is revealing uh, the presence of organics yet again on Titan. Is this adding to the body of knowledge that, that leads us to think there may be a lot more going on underneath the surface? That's exactly right. In fact, Titan is an ocean world, and we think it has a sea of water and ammonia underneath its icy crust. And there might be pathways for this water plus ammonia uh, to get to the surface of Titan. Titan joins Enceladus. 
as an ocean world. And we wonder what kind of prebiotic chemistry, that chemistry that could potentially lead to life, might be going on in the ocean and perhaps sometimes expressed on the surface of Titan. I'm not constrained by being a science, so I'm going to say we wonder about biotic activity rather, as well as prebiotic. So, uh, but you don't have to agree with me. Well, it's um, exciting <laughs> if that was the case. Tremendously, wouldn't it be? One of these nine craters is called Selk. Does it have special significance? Yeah, Selk is one of the younger craters on Titan. It's well defined, and it, what's so interesting is it's the target of the Dragonfly mission to go mm. to Titan. And this is an octocopter that's going to actually fly to different places around Selk Crater and perhaps in the crater itself and actually take samples of the surface. And when the quadcopter is flying across, can use its cameras to look at the landscape and to see what's going on. So a very exciting mission uh, that's set to launch in 2027. What an amazing progression. I mean, here we're talking about this extremely exciting mission, Dragonfly, which is going to build on Cassini. And of course, Cassini maybe didn't just build on Voyager, but actually happened because of Voyager. It's so incredible to look back and think about, you know, the Voyager mission. Uh, Voyager 1 first flew by Titan a little over 40 years ago, uh, 40 years ago in November. And it found a, a smog enshrouded world with this thick, dense, opaque atmosphere. And one of the goals of Voyager was to see through to the surface of Titan. What did Titan look like? And we just didn't have the instruments. I was part of the Voyager team at that time to see the surface. And so after that close flyby, we came within about 2,500 miles of Titan's surface. Plans immediately were underway to have another mission to go back to Titan and to carry a probe and to actually look at and understand the surface of Titan. And that mission was Cassini. Cassini carried the ESA-provided Huygens probe. That probe parachuted down and landed softly on the surface of Titan. Uh, we carried radar instruments and the instruments looking in the infrared windows on Titan to help reveal it, as well as infrared windows in the cameras. And so now we see that globe of Titan and understand it as a very, very interesting world with many similarities to our own methane rain instead of water raining out has lakes and seas of liquid hydrocarbons and such an interesting world with a first close look by voyager one in 1980. quite an anniversary speaking of infrared let's jump over to that other fascinating little world much smaller world of enceladus uh, there was another press release i got back in september of 2020 and it has these gorgeous infrared images. Tell us about these. A global map was made of Enceladus. It's a tiny world, only about 300 miles across. And so combining the images taken by the cameras with the infrared images taken by the visual and infrared mapping spectrometer created some of the highest resolution, most complete maps that we have of Enceladus. And these maps of BIMS looks in the spectral region. So the false colors that you see in these very beautiful maps actually indicate different compositions on Enceladus. And what we find is that those colors correspond to some of the ages of the surface of Enceladus as well. Enceladus, this intriguing little world with active jets shooting out of the South Pole uh, with 
water vapor with organics, also icy particles, all coming from a global ocean underneath Enceladus's icy crust. And so looking at these maps where you see fresh surface, where these particles have fallen back at the South Pole, it's colored in a reddish color and looking at these maps, and this is the water ice. What's interesting, what's new from these maps is if you look in the Northern Hemisphere, there's a large region that also has this reddish color, fresh water ice, fresh in geologic times, in the northern region of Enceladus as well. And what's so interesting is it's telling us in some way, Enceladus either through perhaps icy vents coming up and putting material there on the surface, or maybe ice creeping up through the cracks coming from this subsurface ocean potentially, in the northern hemisphere as well. So a very exciting new result. It took building a global map to really reveal it. We will put up a link, of course, on this week's show page, planetary.org slash radio. You really have to see these. Yes, they're false color images, but they are just so stunning, especially the uh, image, uh, this map of the South Pole of uh, Enceladus. Is it possible, sounds like you're saying it is, that maybe at some point in the not-too-distant past that the North Pole of Enceladus may have had these jets just like we still see uh, at the South Pole? Or maybe it's just oozing up. I think you, you said both of those were possible. Right. Somehow resurfaced. It's not quite at the North Pole. It's more in the mid-latitudes on Enceladus, uh, but it's just a very intriguing result. Composition-wise, which is also, we know, an indication of age because we know the South Pole is active, to see this region that looks so similar, it's just very, very intriguing. You mentioned Dragonfly going to Titan, of course. It's not going to tell us anything in particular new about Enceladus. I'm sure you would still love to see a, uh, a mission head for, uh, head for this other small moon. Oh, an Enceladus mission would be fantastic. Uh, what it could be just flying through the jets at the South Pole multiple times and collecting material. Uh, it could get more exciting, potentially landing on the surface, uh, maybe from an Enceladus orbiter and actually taking your little laboratory down to the surface and making those kinds of measurements and looking for any kind of chemistry going on, fatty acids, amino acids, maybe even carry a little microscope to look and see if perhaps there's evidence of life as we know it. Uh, what's so interesting is Enceladus is essentially coated by snow. It's very bright and white like an icy snowball. And these most of these particles that shoot out of the jets fall back onto the surface and coat Enceladus's surface. So you can land in multiple places. You wouldn't have to go right to the tiger stripes. You could land in multiple places perhaps and get samples. And even perhaps even at some point, maybe we'll get a sample of Enceladus and bring it back to the Earth and then use all of the laboratories we have here uh, to analyze that sample. And that would be tremendously exciting to at some point bring back a sample from Enceladus and, and actually do a lot of studies on that sample. That, that truly is extremely exciting to, uh, to think about. I mean, I guess in some ways it might be easier than getting a sample back from Mars. I mean, you have to come a lot farther, but at least you don't have to deal with that gigantic uh, gravity well that Mars has. And 
you know, I guess we can hope that uh, sample return from Mars proves itself out. Maybe that will lead to uh, getting material back from elsewhere around the solar system. And if you were talking about just an orbiter for Enceladus, could you send the kinds of instruments that everyone hopes will be headed for Jupiter's moon Europa soon? And the same sort of instruments, but you wouldn't need as much radiation shielding, would you? Yes, if you were to fly a Europa Clipper-like mission to Enceladus with a a very sophisticated orbiter, that part would be much easier. And your orbiter at Enceladus, since you don't have the harsh radiation, Saturn's rings essentially act as a shield from the radiation. And so it's a very benign environment. Your orbiter around Enceladus could last for a very long time. In fact, as part of the decadal survey, there was a concept for Enceladus called an orbilander, where you would have an orbiter and a lander uh, that could go down to the surface of Enceladus. I've heard of that. And we will come back to the decadal uh, survey that's uh, currently underway in, a, in, in a, just a few minutes, actually. This is the first I've heard that the rings play a role in keeping the environment around Saturn uh, a little more benign, at least in terms of radiation. I didn't know that. How does that work? Well, Saturn's rings act as a barrier that usually a radiation belt is built up as you have particles spiraling back and forth along the field lines from the North Pole to the South Pole, etc. And these particles are what create the beautiful aurora at Earth. And Saturn also has aurora at its poles as well. And the rings themselves then just stop that uh, process from happening. So you have this region that spans the rings, which are quite extensive at Saturn, and that region is then radiation-free, and so you don't have the huge energetic radiation belts like you have at Jupiter. Fascinating. Uh, Before we move on, is there much other research still underway that relies on Cassini's 13 years at Saturn? There's a lot of research still ongoing for Cassini, In fact, NASA has a data analysis program. It's the Cassini Data Analysis Program. And researchers propose to that program and are funded to continue looking at the Cassini data. And there's so much more there. What's so intriguing is that the science teams are now starting to combine even more carefully the data from multiple instruments. And I think there's a lot of clues and new science when you can start to combine you know, say for Titan, you can take the radar data and the visible images and the infrared data and infrared spectra and even into the ultraviolet and combine all of those data sets to give you a more complete picture of any of these objects that we're looking at. Uh, so that's the next next step there. All right, let's broaden our view a little bit, uh, zoom out from, from Saturn somewhat, although it'll still be in the picture. You're vice chair of OPAG. NASA's Outer Planets Assessment Group. What is OPAG's mission? Uh, The Outer Planet Assessment Group is a forum for scientists to come together and provide input for planning and also prioritizing outer planet exploration activities looking into the future over the next several decades. And we have a chance to hear uh, talks from various missions to present their ideas, also from other scientists about what kinds of science they're looking at. And we want to evaluate the outer solar system, not just the planets, but any of the objects in the outer solar system, and look at what measurements might be possible and what kinds of missions we would like to see in the future. And we provide input to the decadal survey. The Outer Planet Assessment Group 
wrote one of many white papers that were input to uh, the decadal survey. And we also worked closely with another assessment group, the Small Bodies Assessment Group, or SBAG. And uh, we have, it, as it were, joint custody of Pluto and some of the Kuiper Belt objects. So there's some overlap in these assessment groups, but our, our goal is really to provide information to NASA that would help them in formulating their future plans. You have brought us back to the Decadal Survey. This is a very big deal, this project that's underway, right? Absolutely. Uh, this is a chance for the planetary science community to come together and to look over the next decade and evaluate the science that's already been acquired by the various missions and then start to look ahead and say what kind of science and what kinds of missions do we want to do in the next decade and to prioritize, to look at flagship missions, that class of missions like Cassini, where you have a very complex mission, perhaps maybe an ice giant orbiter with a probe would be an example of some kind of a future flagship mission. Look at New Frontiers missions, that's a little uh, less expensive. The next class down, those are competed missions or even discovery class missions. And so basically the Cato survey is this this report uh, that goes to NASA. Also it's read by individuals in Congress, it's uh, the general public. And so it's basically a roadmap of what the outer planets community would like to see in the next decade. Does NASA pay pretty close attention to the recommendations made in the Decadal Survey? I know it's not absolutely required, but but I think they take it pretty seriously, don't they? Absolutely. NASA takes the Decadal Survey very seriously, especially in looking at missions and in looking at any uh, plans to for ideas how to make various kinds of selections. And uh, this particular Decadal Survey, based on so many of the discoveries and findings in the past decade also has a strong astrobiology component as well. Uh, So there's actually separate groups as part of the Decadal Survey. Of course, there's like a giant planet systems group, and then there's an ocean worlds group that's part of the Decadal Survey. There are also groups for Venus and for Mercury and for the moon, all to look and try and come up with the best possible science. Uh, Let's follow up on that uh, mention of uh, ice giants. You you know that we regularly talk on this show about how important it is to to get a dedicated mission to Uranus and our Neptune, most recently with with Heidi Hamill. I I bet your feelings about this haven't changed. It's definitely time for an ice giants mission. The only flybys we've had of Uranus and Neptune have been flybys by Voyager 2. And so they were just glimpses into these very interesting worlds with their moons and rings. And so I think it's definitely time to go back. In the previous decadal survey, an ice giant's mission was third priority uh, in the list of missions. And we just didn't get that far down the list in the last decade. So Mm. hopefully as the the steering committee for the decadal survey meets, uh, they'll put an ice giant's mission at a high priority, an ice giant's orbiter carrying a probe that we could send into the atmosphere of Uranus or Neptune, or perhaps use to study Neptune's very interesting moon, Triton. I have a a slight leaning toward Neptune, although either ice giant has compelling science for a visit, but uh, Neptune has that interesting world, Triton. And Voyager saw evidence of activity of these little tiny plumes coming from Triton. So it'd be very interesting to go back 
Triton is a captured object. It's in a retrograde orbit and a very interesting uh, moon to study in its own right, perhaps another ocean world. But maybe also something captured from much farther out in the solar system that that is sitting there waiting for us to to take a look? Absolutely. Maybe it's a captured Kuiper Belt object uh, mm. that's now there in orbit around Neptune. You had mentioned to me that you worked on a, a mission concept study for Neptune that has uh, uh, seen some progress. Tell me about that. Right. As part of the decadal survey process leading up to it, NASA funded a series of studies that would be input into the decadal survey. And I had the pleasure of being part of uh, the Neptune study to look at what might be possible in actually going back to Neptune and studying Neptune's moon Triton. And in the end, as we were studying, we said, you know, we can take a lot of lessons from Cassini and the Cassini orbiter with the Huygens probe. And we'd want a very similar kind of mission with very capable instruments. We could use Triton much as Cassini used Titan to shape the orbits as we would go around Neptune and would want a very long-lived mission as well. So we, we took some lessons from Cassini and built on those. We also felt that uh, international collaboration would be very important for any kind of an ice giant mission as well, reaching out to other, to ESA, uh, to the Japanese Space Agency, other places, to invite them to join us on a flagship mission to an ocean world. So you would expect that any major mission like this probably would have international involvement. I mean, that seems to be almost the rule nowadays. There's a tremendous advantage to having international participation to bring in additional viewpoints, additional scientists, uh, also additional funding, because usually these uh, giant flagship missions are quite costly and could sort of spread the cost that way and uh, just build on international cooperation and collaboration for an ice giant's mission. What is the expected timetable for the decadal survey? When can we expect to see its recommendations? Well, right now, the various panels are meeting and they're getting community input. They have the white papers. Uh, their input will then go to the steering committee and the survey report gets released in the spring of 2022. During that time, there'll be a chance for community feedback. There'll be community town halls on the decadal. With the final dissemination of the decadal report, in the spring of 2023. So it'll cover the decade from 2023 through 2032. All right. A little more than two years, something to look forward to. Yes. A lot of work going on in the meantime. Well, it's a shame that um, going to be so many missions, scientists, others would like to see around our solar system, all of which have merit and uh, there just isn't enough money to go around. So we'll, we will keep an eye on this, of course. It's something we talk about as well on the monthly Space Policy Edition of Planetary Radio with my colleague, uh, Casey Dreyer. Linda, there's just one other thing that I wanted to, uh, to cover in this conversation, and that is to congratulate you on completing your term as chair of the American Astronomical Society's Division for Planetary Sciences, DPS. And I will note that another good friend of Planetary Radio and the Planetary Society is, is now in that office, has uh, followed you, uh, your former JPL colleague, Amy Meinzer, who's now at the University of, uh, of Arizona. How was your uh, term at DPS? I'm sure the pandemic didn't make it any easier. Right. It was, it, it was a very interesting year for DPS. I was actually... In this uh, year, the outgoing chair, it's three years uh, term, the first year, your incoming chair, the, then the second year, your, your chair. And I was chair for 
the meeting in Switzerland, and that was a joint meeting with the European Planetary Science Congress. And this outgoing chair, then this uh, virtual meeting for DPS. And I think the virtual meeting was a tremendous success, uh, given the constraints that we had to live with, put together a week-long meeting. Uh, the talks were recorded, and yet there were was a chance to have discussion and uh, sort of focus groups on the various types of sessions that we would normally have at DPS. So it was quite different. Uh, DPS is a, a large organization, and we really brought together, uh, I think, a lot of planetary scientists for this particular DPS meeting. And we're hopeful that next year, as we have more and more of the vaccine out that next year uh, for DPS, we'll be able to go back to an in-person meeting. Boy, I would love that. I had a thrilling time at the couple of DPS meetings that I attended, although that was several years ago. I haven't been in quite a while. I, I would love to have a shot at, uh, at attending once more. I imagine you would also be there to uh, spend time with your many planetary science colleagues from around the world. Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't miss it. I really enjoy uh, the yearly DPS meetings. Linda, as always, it is wonderful to catch up with you about, about Cassini and about so much more. I sure hope that we can continue to uh, have these periodic uh, meetings and talk about what's happening out there, especially in the outer reaches of our uh, solar system where uh, Cassini has done such great work and, and we look forward to more from new missions. It's been a pleasure to talk with you, Matt. I look forward to sharing more Cassini results and future results perhaps someday for other missions. Cassini Huygens Project Scientist Linda Spilker. Another scientist is coming right up. Stick around for this week's What's Up with Bruce Betts. Hi, this is Jennifer Vaughn, the Planetary Society's Chief Operating Officer. 2020 has been a year like no other. It challenged us, changed us, and helped us grow. Now we look forward to a 2021 with many reasons for hope. Help us create a great start for this promising new year at planetary.org slash planetary fund. When you invest in the planetary fund, your year-end gift will be matched up to $100,000 thanks to a generous member. Your support will enable us to explore worlds, defend Earth, and find life elsewhere across the cosmos. Please learn more and then donate today at planetary.org slash planetary fund. Thank you. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. The chief scientist of the Planetary Society is here. That's Bruce Betts. Were you out there? Did you see the conjunction? I did see the conjunction. It was spectacular. I mean, it was two dots of light in the sky, but they were really close together, and we knew there were Jupiter and Saturn, and uh, that made it super cool. I took out the telescope, did my best to uh, hold my iPhone up to the eyepiece and actually got an image that some of our colleagues were impressed by when I showed it to them. But it was so much more impressive just to put my eye against that eyepiece and see those two giant worlds right next to each other without having to shift the telescope at all. It was, it was pretty cool. Very cool. You know, they're not actually next to each other in three-dimensional space. Right? <laughs> Do you see the cartoon that, uh, that one of our aforementioned colleagues was passing around where they're watching in the telescope and they smash into each other. And then the, the person at the telescope says, damn this 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, orbital dynamics does not seem to be affected by 2020. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. So God. far so good. We still have a few days left. <laughs> what else is up? Or, or tell us more about that. It was the closest conjunction or getting close to each other in the sky in 400 years for the Jupiter and Saturn. 
But in another 20 years, they'll be nearly as close. And in 80 years, they'll actually be closer. So put that on your calendar, Matt. I can give you the exact dates later. <laughs> I'm penciling it in right now. For this year and into the next, I guess, Jupiter and Saturn <laughs> will be getting lower and lower in the early evening and uh, dropping out of sight really soon. But you're going to have Mars still to keep you company in the evening sky looking still pretty darn bright and reddish uh, high overhead in the south in the early evening. And in the pre-dawn sky, we've got super bright Venus over in the east, but it also will be dropping over the next month or so out of sight. We've got the hardest to pronounce meteor shower, at least for Bruce, uh, of the year coming up. I know this always excites you. Let me try it. The quadrantids. That wasn't terrible. That was maybe your best ever. I mean, that so much for this planetary radio holiday tradition of hearing you attempt to pronounce it. I think you got it. Okay. Well, I shouldn't say it again, but I'll try to amuse you anyway. The quadrantid. <laughs> Dang it. <laughs> that meteor shower named after a constellation that doesn't even exist anymore, meaning it's not one of the 88 officially recognized constellations. But they kept the name Quadrantids. That will be peaking on the night of January 2nd into the 3rd. More precisely, the peak is predicted to be at 1430 UT on January 3rd, which is more important than with most meteor showers because this one has a pretty sharp peak in terms of the most meteors typically occurring within many hours as opposed to many days with uh, like the Perseids and Geminids. But uh, there's more bad news. It's going to be a very bright moon, which is good news for Moon Watcher, but bad news for Meteor Watcher. But anyway, night of second and third, you might catch some meteors. Whew. On to this week in space history. It was 1968 that the first humans went around the moon as part of Apollo 8. And then in 2003, Mars Express from the European Space Agency went into orbit around Mars, still doing great work all these years later. We move on to random space fact. That was a good test of your new microphone. <laughs> Did I break it? I think your voice broke. <laughs> <laughs> it broke long ago. In honor of the Jupiter-Saturn great conjunction, we're going to compare the two worlds one and three quarters Saturns would fit into Jupiter. One and three quarters. Okay, that's that sounds about right. Yeah, both both the uh, <laughs> big glad dudes. You think so? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're both really really big. That's a technical term. We'll come back to them in a little bit in the new trivia contest. But let's go to the old trivia contest. I asked you, what are the only two Maria on the Moon named after people? How'd we do, Matt? We had the biggest response to this one that we have had in a long time, almost double our, our usual response. I suppose it might have been those prizes, that uh, new Planetary Society baseball cap, and the copy of Teasel Muir Harmony's great book, Operation Moonglow, A Political History of Project Apollo, sort of an international uh, political history of Project Apollo. You know, Teasel was uh, our guest on the Space Policy Edition, uh, the most recent uh, show that uh, I did with Casey. I'm going to jump straight to a person I believe is our winner, first-time winner, possibly a first-time entrant as well. I think so. Mitch Stevens in Bellingham, Washington. Speaking of Casey, they must be neighbors up there. Uh, Mitch says... 
The two lunar mare were named after people that are named after people or mare Humboldtianium, named after Prussian explorer and scientist Alexander von Humboldt, and Mare Smythe or Smithy, named after English Royal Navy officer and astronomer William Henry Smythe or Smith. Do you have any idea which it is, and, and are those correct? Those are correct, and one of those pronunciations is correct. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go with Smith, even though it looks like Smythe, because, you know, I'm an American. American. Mitch, congratulations. He added, love all the work y'all do. Very proud to support such a wonderful organization. So I suppose it sounds like he's one of our members as well. Thank you for that as well, Mitch. Uh, we're going to get your uh, baseball cap and the book by uh, Teasel out to you uh, very soon. I have more. I always do. Norman Kassoon in the UK, one of our regulars, he said that uh, Humboldt, very accomplished guy, he resurrected the use of the word cosmos from the ancient Greek and, and assigned it to his multi-volume treatise, Cosmos. He also was the first person, at least according to Norman, to describe the phenomenon and cause of human-induced climate change. He did this as early as 1800. Wow. Pretty amazing. They should name something after him. <laughs> well, actually, that's answered by Michael Unger in British Columbia, who says the weather might actually be better at the Sea of Humboldt up on the moon than Humboldt, Saskatchewan, <laughs> which are both named after Alexander von Humboldt. <laughs> then Rennie Christopher, big run of uh, people up in Washington State this time. I wonder whether you can get your wrought iron spaceship repaired at Mare Smithy. <laughs> All right, now it gets personal. Robert Klein, who we uh, hear from pretty regularly from Arizona, though not official, there are also two very small Maria on the far side, Mare Betsy and Mare Kaplani. <laughs> <laughs> really? Well, we should look into that. A Devon O'Rourke in Colorado, he agreed with Betsy, same spelling that uh, Robert used, <laughs> but suggests Mare Kaplanianum, which I like a lot. I think that has a nice ring to it. Mare Kaplanianum. Listen up, <laughs> IAU. Um, here's an interesting one from uh, Jun Cheng. I hope I have that right. In China, the big prize strategy really works. So apparently that was what pulled her into uh, this week's show. Hello there. I've been a proud member for just over a year, even though I don't always enter the contest, but I always listen. You've accompanied me on so many subway rides and airplanes and high-speed trains. <laughs> cool. well, we're glad you're out there, uh, June. Um, and then this from Mel Powell. We really need, uh-oh, Latin alert, a mare quad specio Timere, in honor of Dr. Betts. Yes, per Google Translate, that is probably random space fact in Latin. And then he, <laughs> he says, I dare Bruce to use it as an intro once. I double canis dare him. <laughs> well, uh, we'll have to try that. And apparently we should both take up ancient languages. Uh, speaking of ancient, not quite dead languages, here is this week's uh, input from our Poet Laureate Dave Fairchild. We named two Lunar Maria for people. I have reckoned Humboldtianum is the first and Smithy the second. Smithy has wrinkle ridges like my brow, in truth. When forced to rhyme these Latin names, I need some English, Bruce. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to do several weeks in a row of Latin. 
<laughs> oh, joy. All right. Well, here's your chance. Take us into a new one. I'm not. No, no Latin is required, at least, in the following. Back to Jupiter and Saturn. Here's your question. What is the approximate ratio of the average density of Jupiter to the average density of Saturn? In other words, how many times denser is Jupiter than Saturn? I find the answer rather interesting. Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. All right. You have until New Year's Eve Eve. That would be December 30, Wednesday, December 30 at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us this answer. And uh, you can still win yourself the brand new Planetary Society baseball cap. You'll find it at planetary.org slash store or just go right to chopshopstore.com. All right, everybody, go out there, look up in the night sky and think about what food you want to eat before the end of the year. Thank you. Good night. All of it. All of it. (laughs) He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. Hey, Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Have Have a great one, Bruce. You too, man. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by the women and men who are both members and explorers. You can join the adventure at planetary.org slash membership. Mark Hilverda is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra. Ad Astra.